Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, it's a BBC sizzler. We discuss all the big announcements to come out of the first annual plan. More money for kids, fact-checking, podcasting. What does it all mean? We'll find out. Plus, is Jon Snow the real purveyor of hate and was the Guardian drunk at Glastonbury? I, I may have got that the wrong way round. And in the Media Quiz, we find out who knows their media onions. It's all to come on today's Media Podcast. And joining me on the roof terrace, it's summer, forgive the sirens, at Picture House Central, our business insider, senior news editor, Jake Cantor, and something else is managing director, Steve Ackerman. Uh, Steve, for those who aren't regular listeners, to give us a flavour of the kind of work something else makes, uh, I note recently that you had DJ Semtex offering gardening advice. Well, it wasn't actually DJ Semtex, it was DJ Khalid, uh-huh. who is very famous apparently, talking to Semtex and he's big into his gardening and so yes that video which has done very very well for uh, one extra was then retweeted on the Gardener's Christian Time Twitter feed wow that's an impressive spread of, and so you do both mix. things do you uh, one extra do. and Gardener's Christian we Time we do yeah there you go that's the breadth right there uh, Jake what's been your hottest story at Business Insider UK this week we had a really great story last week I can tell you about which uh, got our name <laughs> good mentioned. enough we're only on every three <laughs> got our name mentioned in Parliament um, oh wow okay which was quite exciting for the whole office our politics reporter Adam Payne wrote about the fact that uh, a group of Tory MPs were lobbying for Andrea Leadsom to become the uh, new leader of the Conservative Party and uh, she was called out on it in Parliament uh, and our name was dropped and it was all very gratifying that is, yeah. And, and if you're going to take a reputable source that politicians are reading and quoting in the House of Commons that has an exclusive on an inside political story, I think generally speaking, you know, until perhaps just a year ago, that would be expected to come from, well, basically the Telegraph or the Guardian. Yeah, I think so. I think it's an indication of our ambitions, certainly. We've brought in a new politics editor, a guy called uh, Adam Biankoff, who's doing great stuff for us. And um, yeah, we're seeing the traffic as well. Well, as we used to say at The Guardian, let's start with the BBC, uh, because I've consolidated not one, not two, but three BBC stories into one exciting whole. They have announced a string of developments designed to make them competitive in this ever-changing digital landscape, it says here. So let's tackle these incentives one by one. First, more money for children's programming. £34 million budget increase over the next three years. Steve. Long overdue, very sensible completely the right space the BBC should be uh, placing itself in when you bear in mind the lack of uh, spend in other areas on children's 
But why has that happened, by the way? The BBC makes 97% of UK children's programming and can't carry ads. I mean, you'd kind of think, surely, you know, where do Disney and Hasbro and Mattel want to advertise? Why aren't ITV and Channel 4 and Channel 5 making more kids stuff? Well, probably the answer is because for people like Disney, uh, they've got their own outlets um, and it's clearly difficult to compete on that in that space. I think the other advantage the BBC have in terms of kids is obviously it is a safe space. It's an advert-free space. And I think you often find parents uh, will encourage their children to go to the iPlayer or to go online to go and absorb BBC content because of that. So, you know, I think this is a... You have to shout when the BBC get it right, because quite often they get bashed. And I think on this one, they're absolutely right. Well, their, their kids' programming is excellent. There's no question about that. But you, you say getting it right, they're only doing it because Ofcom told them to, aren't they, Jake? No, I don't think that's fair on the BBC. I think but they've got, true, they've got a genuine... Ofcom told them to, and now no, they're doing it. That's the order of events. To children's. I mean, look, th- there was big lobbying last year from PACT, uh, Animation UK, uh, the Children's Media Foundation. They all wanted the BBC's children's budget to stay over 100 million over the course of this charter. It looks like they've succeeded in that aim. You know, the BBC, as Steve said, should be applauded when it gets things right. And I, I don't think this is just a political sop. I think the BBC does have a genuine commitment to children's. It always has done. It's always done it brilliantly. And I'm sure we'll see lots more great content, not just on television, but online as well, more importantly, where a lot of this resource is going to go. And Steve's also right. This is a big industry-wide issue. There is not enough commitment to children's from other broadcasters. And Ofcom, if it's kicking the BBC to get into children's, it should be doing exactly the same to Channel 4 and more often. Because yeah, there's un- zero Jay, hours un- on Channel 4 yeah, now. Under Jay Hunt, children's was completely neglected. No, but it's literally zero. I looked yes. at the figures. I mean, Channel look, 5 look, still does 30 hours. Channel, Channel 4, 4 does zero. Channel 4 would argue that they are trying to cater for a slightly older audience. They sort of count children as sort of 8 to 13, 14. I'm not sure if that bracket's quite right, but an older children's audience, and that's where they're focusing resource. But I don't think it's having the impact that they believe it is. And that digital area for kids, what sort of innovation do you think there might be there and opportunities for producers like you, Steve? Well, funnily enough, uh, you know, definitely overlapping with one of the other BBC stories, I think you've got to look at podcasts or on-demand audio. It's certainly something that I think you've seen some people like Matt Deegan, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of his... Um, Folder Media. Fun Folder Kids. Media, that's yeah. right. Fun Kids who do a fantastic job. But it's something they've, they've I think, been very proactive in. Um, so I think you've got to look in that space. It's difficult in the game space because that's obviously very well developed and you know the BBC just doesn't have the sorts of funds you really need, I think, to do that well. But where sort of interactivity, you know, online and interactivity meets, so sort of simple web games that can be played online, the BBC's done that very well for kids. And I think doing more in that space, again, where it's got an educational purpose or a public service purpose I think is a really interesting space for them to be looking at and of course it's not really new is it in the sense that you know the first computer I ever used was a BBC micro they've been doing that for years well and also I mean mean, they have actually been spending fairly significant amounts in the online space with interactivity I think a lot of it goes under the radar but um, you know over the past six seven eight years they have continually spent in these in these areas okay project they did last year was the microchip BBC microchip which has been sent to all 11-year-olds in schools and it is encouraging them to code. Only the BBC could provide that kind of public service. It would be quite scary if Richard Desmond did. Uh, Let's move on (laughs) to the uh, second BBC story. I was going to make it the third one, but you teased it there, Stephen. I'm agile. That's what we are here at the Media Podcast. Uh, And that is the BBC's plans to produce original podcasts. James Pennell 
announced that. He says that the UK lags behind the US and Sweden in terms of podcast listening, and, and that's because the BBC hasn't been able to innovate in the medium because of regulations. Is that true? Because I look at the iTunes chart and there's a lot of Kirsty Young and there's a lot of Friday Night Comedy and, okay, they're not innovating, they're rebroadcasting radio shows, but I can see why that regulation existed. That's to stop them completely dominating all podcasts. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... I mean, you know, the key point about this is that there's been a relaxation in the rules so that they can create original content just for online, whereas up up until now, they were only allowed to put into podcast formats uh, programmes that were already broadcast... So, um, so the best example of that is the Chris Warburton one for Five Live, which is a true crime podcast and only exists as a podcast at the moment. It's been a number yeah, one show. That's right. Is that the kind of thing the BBC should be doing? I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with James Pennell that uh, the reason podcast numbers are lower in this country is because the BBC hasn't been able to do that. And I think you're absolutely right that we've got a very dominant uh, audio broadcaster. And actually, there has been a lot of innovation in the podcast space. And you know that better than me because you're one of the people who's who's led the way on that front, um, not only with this podcast, but with some of your other very well-known ones. I'm not interrupting uh, you. Well, you know, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't sure how far the plugging should uh, you can go. carry on. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm not sure from what I've heard so far whether I'd say that's innovation. I mean, certainly things like the Chris Warbutton po- podcast, it's really picking up on what we've already seen coming out of America in terms of, the, in terms of the, the innovations there. I'd really like to see the BBC be a lot more adventurous in what they're trying to achieve in the podcast space. And what about the sports stuff? You both listen to more sport than I do. There's a Freddie Flintoff one, isn't yes, there? Yes, and the, like? uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, Freddie, what is it, Freddie Robbie and the ping pong guy or something? Yeah, I'm not sure if that comes under James, though, because that would be being produced in Salford, which probably comes out of five live and therefore is a sport it does come out of five podcast. Live, yeah. but it yeah. only exists because they're allowed to make original podcasts now yes yes i mean look james pennell has got a big new job as head of radio at the bbc and his grand innovative idea is boom 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 podcasts i mean come on how dated <laughs> no i mean have you heard of cereal it's really good <laughs> no i i i'm i I'm kind of a bit ambivalent about this, I think. Um, look, the BBC at its best is the tide that lifts all the boats, and you would hope that uh, it has that effect in the podcast space by committing a bit more resource to it. But at its worst, it will drown everyone. What uh, about? I, I I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, well, to be I'm, honest. I'm, well, thank you for asking me, Jake. <laughs> Um, I'd be interested to see whether the UI for Radio iPlayer or whatever they're using for promoting this stuff on a BBC-branded site is actually going to become open to independence now. Because we had that discussion, didn't we, around BBC iPlayer for TV content, and it never happened for understandable rights reasons. It's complicated to put a Channel 4 show on iPlayer. I'm saying it never happened. I think there are a few instances, aren't there, of public service broadcasting where they've done that. But with podcasting, there really isn't an issue apart from making sure that the shows pass general taste and decency standards. Why? If you listen to, for example, to take something that springs to mind, the media show on Radio 4, that it wouldn't then recommend that you listen to this. Um, that would be a genuine boost to all podcasters if the BBC were able to offer that, but I'm not seeing any plans along those lines. Yes, the sort of podcast equivalent of what they did with the radio player. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the other question is clearly one around the commercial market. You know, I know you were discussing this on the on the last edition. Uh, in terms of Apple, obviously, are starting to open up some of, some of the numbers there. And, um, you know, just at a time when the podcast market commercially is just starting to to bring in revenues, and certainly in America, very significant revenues. I mean, I, I, I saw a fantastic talk from Ira Glass where he went on to some of the stats that This American Life and Serial are doing and the revenues they're bringing in. It, and it really is, it's phenomenal, phenomenal numbers. Um, but just as a time when that's starting to happen in the UK, what you don't want is obviously um, a broadcaster who's not doing anything for commercial gain coming in and really swamping the market to the extent that it's very difficult for that uh, market commercially to get off the ground. 
they're only doing eight eight projects for now for now it's early doors okay and actually one final question on this before we move on to the third exciting bbc announcement uh steve for you because something else produced the mayo and kermode show don't you which has what two hundred fifty thousand downloads an episode something like that a million a month yeah yeah Yeah. so okay so well okay (laughs) (laughs) fine you can figure that how you like i guess there's a back catalogue am i right in saying you are allowed to monetize that commercially overseas but not in the uk that's correct yeah do you think and of course, in a, in a way, it would you'd be shooting yourself in the foot to say yes. But do you think that's the right judgment that listeners in the UK, you've paid for it through the license fee, you shouldn't have to listen to ads? Or is it more like in the old days when you used to buy a DVD of 40 Towers and there'd be an upfront cost for that? It's not designed to be included in the license fee. No, I do think it's right that in the UK, I mean, that content has been paid for by all of us, by the license fee payer. And therefore, I think if you're in the UK, I think it is right you should be able to have that free of charge so I haven't I haven't got a as the person making it and the person who could make money out of that I haven't got a problem with that but it is right to then charge overseas listeners to enjoy our content for free that we make yes absolutely because what that does is return money back obviously as the producer we would see some money and and Kermode and Mayo would see some money but it would uh, return money back to the BBC as well so that's obviously in the license fee payers interest okay are you ready for that third exciting BBC story hit me I'm (laughs) I'm sensing the excitement in the air it's this reality check their fact-checking service is going to expand. We're living in a post-truth universe, as we've discussed on the show many times, but again, there are independent organisations doing this, like Full Fact, who we interviewed on the show. Do we need the BBC to be doing this? Jake? Uh, Yes. I think the BBC has a role to play in fact-checking, and uh, you've got to remember that the BBC is the most trusted media organisation in this country, and I think viewers and listeners will always rely on the BBC to tell them the truth and exactly how a story is shaping up. And uh, if people like that in the form of a fact check or whatever you want to call it, then more for them. It seems to me, though, that people are quite prepared to ignore the fact that the BBC does this and then say it doesn't exist anyway. I mean, during the Brexit campaign, there's all this business about, oh, the stuff that was written on the side of the bus, that was a lie. Why did no one tell us that was a lie? I remember sitting through some quite tedious BBC packages telling me exactly how that money broke down, that it wasn't entirely truthful, that it related to a particular portion of the pie. Do people really read this fact-check stuff anyway? They still seem to get out of it what they want. Well, this isn't... Well, first of all, this isn't really about back-of-the-bus stuff, is it? I mean, this is this is... I think completely about uh, the evolution of news in the online space and uh, the way that, that clearly inaccurate or false stories can gain huge traction you know, through, through just being picked up and shared. And so I think the BBC as a trusted source has got that role to play. And you say, well, you know, these things were being, being picked up. I think still the fact that there's a place you can go to just find out for yourself, even if that's only a small minority of people who might be inclined to do that, is quite important. And especially for the journalistic community. You know, as resources get hit more and more for news journalism, uh, I think this is a great function for for how a public service broadcaster should be behaving. But then one of the resources that has been cut since 2010 is BBC monitoring. That could have been a place to be doing reality check stuff. Are you saying the BBC's... uh... (laughs) Got double standards on things. I wouldn't. I'm balanced and impartial, <laughs> of course, under my own regulatory Well, we system. saw Tony Hall talking this week about securing the future of the BBC and making sure it appeals to young viewers, but they took £50 million out of BBC Three a couple of years ago. So, you know, I think there's, there's always going to be mixed, mis- mixed messages from the BBC. It's such a big organisation that contradiction does creep in. Right. Well, I don't know about you listeners, but I enjoyed those three BBC stories so much, I'm going to chuck in a fourth. <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting this. I know. Who was? P- 
personalised content for iPlayer. What do we think about that? It's a good thing. I think the most interesting thing that's happened in the last few weeks is that you now have to sign in to iPlayer to access content. And I think the, the most recent figure I could find was from last year. And I think the BBC's got about 7.2 million registered users. And that will increase sharply now that people have to log in. And there were figures last year as well that of those 7.2 million people, they are watching 40% more content because of what is being recommended to them. Wow. And Steve, when Ben Cooper came in at Radio 1, he said the average age of our listeners is too old. Therefore, we have to lose listeners in order to sort of go back to focusing on what we're supposed to be actually achieving. What about if iPlayer concludes that the average age of a BBC viewer or a BBC online viewer is older or younger or more male or more female or more city-based or more rural-based than they want? Should they then be acting change on the basis of that data? I'm not sure it's quite the same, is it? Because iPlayer is an all-encompassing tool for all the different BBC brands, whereas obviously for Radio 1, uh, there's a particular demographic they were being asked to secure on behalf of the BBC. So, so what if they find out not enough young people are logging onto iPlayer, for example? Well... I mean, really, I think this doesn't this boil down to the nature of the content and probably the marketing of that content as well. You know, Radio 1 have their own channel now on the iPlayer. And interestingly, some of those programmes are doing very significant numbers, certainly more than you might find, um, uh, you know, for a programme airing on BBC2 or BBC4. Then you say, well, if the content's there and is being consumed, it's a case of how you market the brand to make sure that, that, that the right demographic is aware of where they can go to find that content, i.e. the iPlayer. And the BBC store closed this month, didn't it? Why do you think that failed? It was, it was too late to the party. Why? Because they were using the iTunes model of charging per download rather than yes. the Netflix model of streaming. If, if the BBC had looked at ITV, they'd have seen that it doesn't work. ITV tried micropayments for shows. It flopped enormously. I mean, it fell right on its face. And they stopped it very quickly at ITV. Uh, around the same time, BBC launches BBC store. And here we are, two years later... And it's uh, you know, closing as well. So do we know, I mean, maybe you don't, what is the option now if you're an expat and you live in Cyprus and you want to watch EastEnders? Is there a way of paying legitimately to watch BBC content online or does that well, not exist now? the BBC's just launched BritBox ah. with ITV and uh, some other organisations. I genuinely haven't heard about this. Steve's <laughs> nodding along. BritBox, go on. Uh, so that's it, like Hulu it, for British content, is it? it? Basically, yeah. it's, a, it's okay. a shop window for the best of British context. Where, yeah, I think it's, it's kind of aimed at expats and you can get your fix of... EastEnders or Coronation Street. There's also plenty of BBC shows that obviously are available on Netflix and iTunes and I can tell and you that, that that's where you go for BBC World Wide content Amazon. now in the UK. Yeah. yeah, stuff you're already paying for. I mean that the model the model of paying per episode was completely overrun by Netflix and Amazon. You know, people expect to pay a monthly fee, no nonsense, and watch whatever content they want. Well, that was so good. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to throw a fifth BBC story into the mix. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's a complete BBC <laughs> media pod. Uh, and that is because Chris Moyles, Tony Blackburn and more, finish my sentence for me, Steve, are getting together uh, 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 to appear on Radio 1 Vintage, is it called? Or? That's right, yeah. yeah. Radio 1 Vintage. So it's a DAB pop-up like Radio 2 Country or Radio 250s, except it's for the old Radio 1 DJs. Why are they doing this? They're doing it because it's the 50th anniversary of Radio 1. Now, you say don't kick the BBC when they're down. You think of the uh, history of Radio 1 presenters and you, you might think that reuniting them all on a platform would be a bad idea PR-wise. Um, 
you know, they got up to some mischief, didn't they? I can imagine it must have been a nightmare internally at the BBC how you commemorate 50 years of the BBC without mentioning Dave Lee Travis, Jimmy Savile and all the rest of it. Well, and also don't forget how you commemorate 50 years for a youth brand. And that's probably, yes. the, that's probably the real uh, angle, I think, to this story that I actually think Ben Cooper's made the right call, which is to say, look, I'm not going to go overboard on air because on Radio 1 on Radio 1 because to my young audience it's kind of not only is it is it irrelevant do I want to shout about the fact that I'm supposed to be this you know a youth brand and I'm 50 years old yeah. mm, not quite sure if that works yeah. uh, so what I'll do is I'll celebrate the heritage of it and allow people for who this is meaningful i.e. people like us who are yeah. old and grey you remember um, Chris Moyles and remember it how old are we yeah to get a bit more excited I, I think I think it's quite it's quite a neat idea and I, I and actually I think the sort of launch of it the, the, the PR around it was very deftly handled by Ben. And to take the other side of that coin, I did see the Mail Online article that was furious that listeners in their 50s and 60s who would love to hear Tony Blackburn may not have digital radios at home and therefore they're being deprived of hearing this on FM. Can you pin that on the BBC though? Well, they've chosen to do it as a pop-up, haven't they, rather than no, broadcasting on Radio 2, for example. But you're talk- the, the real crux of what you're saying there is that digital radio is not as widely available as it should be. Yes, I suppose. <laughs> and actually, it's the BBC's job to, to try and get people to buy DAB radios as well, and then maybe that's part of the reason Partly. they've done this. And let's also be honest, the it's Daily Mail would get... Job. The, the Daily Mail loves getting furious about anything to do with the BBC, so... It's kind of, you know. Will you be listening? Uh, probably not. I might tune in for a bit of curiosity, but, um, you know, I, I, you know, I've heard Tony Blackburn enough. Uh, I don't really want to hear Simon Bates again. I don't know if he's going to be on. Uh, you know, Moyles, I can listen to any day of the week, but... So it probably isn't for me, though. I think I'm with you, actually, which is a shame because I don't know why that is. I w- I, I'd like the idea of listening to a well-crafted two-hour documentary about Radio 1. I just don't want to hear Tony Blackburn chatting to Nick Grimshaw. I can sort of imagine what that would be like without hearing it. I mean, I'll tell you, I don't, I, and I don't know whether they're doing this, if they were creating a little documentary to go on the iPlayer, actually, yes. I'd watch that. I'd be yeah. quite interested in sort of some of the stories and what was going on behind the scenes. But to hear the same broadcasters on air again playing music from yesteryear and rehashing their old stories I'm not sure that's so interesting you can quite easily imagine something like that on BBC4 as well well yeah. all you yeah. need to imagine is the Radio 2 schedule isn't it I suppose that's the problem <laughs> that's where Radio 1 presenters go isn't well, it the and they're more popular than yeah. ever the decent ones yeah Yeah. well here's something you don't find on the BBC we're going to take an ad break I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. 
parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Time for some news in brief now. Jake and Steve are still with me. And let's do post-truth news. Not fake news. Let's talk about people saying other things are fake news. You with me? Last week, Jon Snow was the subject of accusations of bias on air after it was reported he joined protests at Glastonbury. And then on Thursday, Liam Fox hit out at the BBC claiming the corporation would rather the country failed than Brexit succeed. Bias in broadcast journalism, which is supposed to be regulated, although Jon Snow wasn't actually broadcasting at the time he was at Glastonbury, of course... Uh, your thoughts, Jake? Well, shock horror, Channel 4 News is mildly left-leaning. Yeah. <laughs> Although, to be fair to Jon Snow, he said he had no recollection of doing the crude Tory chant at... Uh, Which is entirely consistent <laughs> with the weekend at Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah, at Glastonbury. <laughs> Although, Jon Snow, I spoke to him before the election because he was very grumpy about the fact that Theresa May hadn't given him an interview. Right. Uh, as it turned out, she capitulated at the 11th hour and gave him a 10 minute slot <laughs> i think it was the day before the election so uh his 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 groaning and mumbling had paid off in the end and you know again shock horror big tory sticks the boot into the bbc where do we stand though on john snow because it is you, like you say his politics are fairly evident from watching channel 4 news i mean okay he does suggest questions from the other side of the political spectrum when he's interviewing someone and he's a good interviewer but it's fairly clear which side of the political debate he comes from and why you'd tune into Channel 4 News in the first place. And then he has had these rants online, not at Glastonbury, but, you know, about Gaza, for example, which a BBC reporter would not be allowed to do. Is that cool? But isn't that the whole point? He's doing it because he's not a BBC reporter, because he is able, he is able to do it. He's not bound by the same restrictions. But he is bound by the same restrictions. Well, he's bound by the same by, regulation. He's bound by the same regulation when he's broadcasting. I, 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 you know, from a personal perspective, I would feel more... You know, I, I always quite like it when you don't really know the politics of the people fronting the news and that you then are very surprised when they vote one way or another when many years later they, they, they come out and tell you. Do I have an issue about, about him shouting things at Glastonbury? Not particularly. I think the more sinister thing is the story you mentioned with Liam Fox because this is obviously this is only a week or two after Andrew Leadsom's outburst about the news or, or the broadcast institutions need to be more patriotic I think was her was her word and you know this is really tied up to, tied up in that fervor that we saw from uh, very very ideological leavers before the election you know get rid of the saboteurs and all that sort of nonsense enemies of the people and it feels to me like there's still a very small faction who rather wanting to encourage a true element of dialogue and debate within the media and within broadcasting are still trying to squash and shut down that debate and don't like it when they hear something from the other side and actually as a vibrant democracy regardless of where you sit on the political fence of the referendum it's really important that we can have that debate and that does mean whichever side you're on sometimes you're going to hear things you don't agree with and you don't like how many Brexit voters do we think work for BBC News? Do you know what? I, I, don't think, I, I don't think this is a game worth getting into. I mean, first of all, BBC News is run by a guy who, who used to head up The Times, which it is a murder place. run so, by. No, 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 but... There is... I mean, I, I don't... I'm, I absolutely, personally believe there isn't a bias on screen, and I'll defend the BBC's impartiality. 
but it is true that the people who make the programmes are mostly sort of left-leaning Oxbridge graduates like they always were. Well, potentially, but if you speak to Momentum supporters, they would rant as well about how anti-Corbyn the BBC has been. Vociferously, yeah. Well, yeah. well, that too, because they're Blairites, aren't they? Right. That's who they are. They're people like me. Well, I, th- I, th- I think more, more to the point is you have people on the far right and people on the far left com- complaining, and therefore... You know, they're they're pro- doing their job They're right. probably getting it right. Sport now and uh, Sky. We're going to talk about Sky now, not the BBC. Sky Sports are dropping numbered channels branding. So no more Sky Sports 1, 2, 3, etc. And instead, we're going to get Sky Sports Football 1 and Sky Sports Rugby or whatever. Good idea? Uh, I'm not sure it'll make a huge amount of difference. Sky's just had its biggest drop in Premier League viewing figures in seven years. Um, Why is that? Is that BT? Two, probably a couple of reasons. Well, BT's... BT will be an element within that, but uh, you know, more more people are watching through Sky's online services like Now TV and Sky Go, uh, which don't get counted by Barb, uh, instantly. Uh, and the 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 few the, the huge growth in illegal streaming is is doing the damage. I'm a big football fan. When I want to watch Spurs play, I will buy a day pass and watch it through Now TV. Do I care that it's on Sky Sports Football? or Sky Sports 1, I don't give a damn. <laughs> no, but at the moment, as I understand it, because I'm not into sport at all, you either buy a Sky Sports package or you don't. Whereas presumably this is paving the way so that like Now TV, but through your satellite dish, you'd be able to say, I'm only interested in the football. So Potentially, the yeah. And, that, and if it makes it cheaper yeah. for me to then buy a day pass just to watch the football channel, then great. I think that's the idea, isn't it, Steve? Or specifically, actually, probably not football, but if you're only interested in Formula One, for example, then it would definitely be cheaper. Well, it obviously makes it easier from a branding perspective or from a marketing perspective to sort of understand what each proposition is. But I suppose it goes back to the heart of of what what so much of the entertainment industry is struggling with, which is, you know, kind of does it matter what your channel's called anymore? It's kind of what what you're saying, Jake, that that you've got to look at what the audience behaviour is, which is an on-demand pattern and you're quite right illegal streaming especially for sport is massive now absolutely massive but why is it massive because it allow it gives an on-demand option i want to watch it therefore i'll go and find where i can watch it from it's exactly the same issue the music industry were having all those years ago uh you know the difficulty for sky is they've paid so much money now for the football as well that that actually the sky package is very very expensive and when you only have to pay whatever it is eight quid a month for netflix it's a vast difference between that and the basic package you need to pay for Sky. And then when you add on the sports channels, you are talking about hundreds of pounds expenditure more than you would be if you're just doing illegal streams and a bit of Netflix. So if you follow that through to its logical conclusion, that means less money in football, doesn't it, in 10 years' time? Potentially. Actually, I, no, I don't think so. Because where the Premier League, because the Premier League is now a global proposition. And so it's, it's getting, I think, to the point where it has the potential to, even in terms of a domestic supply, potentially break out. So, you know, someone... I, I think they're probably in the place where someone is always going to now pay the money they want because they yeah because they're such a global proposition now and in fact I I think I'm right in saying the revenues that they're now getting in from international broadcast rights exceed the old domestic deal that that I caveat that I might have that completely wrong but it's certainly very very significant you know you go anywhere in the world now in a way that you never saw before and. The Premier League is a global brand and the clubs within it are global brands. Tell me about it. It's so irritating, isn't it? When you're in another country, where are you from? England. Oh, Manchester United. I literally have no response for that. Uh, Sticking with Sky. And the Culture Secretary, Karen Bradley, has said that she is minded, that's the quote, to refer Rupert Murdoch's bid for Sky to the Competition Commission. Now, many people that we spoke to at the start of the year, Jake, thought that this was going to be a done deal for 21st Century Fox, that... 
2017 would mean full-on ownership by the Murdochs. Why hasn't it happened, Jake? <laughs> My opinion hasn't changed. <laughs> you think I, it, is I think the government's going through the motions at the moment. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. It's a question of when, not if. <laughs> yeah, but if it is a question of when, it could. The answer to that could be 12 months. It could. It could. It could be delayed. But I think as long as 21st century Century Fox feel it's moving in the right direction and they're getting the right signals behind the scenes, I think they'll be quite relaxed about that. If you talk to people at Sky, they are so confident that this deal is going to happen they almost dismiss you when you ask them about it. Brexit's around the corner. Will this deal look better or worse if it does get delayed by year? Rupert Murdoch has waited you know, six years. You know, the last time he had a go was 2011. He ain't getting any younger, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but his sons are running 21st Century Fox, yeah. and all the indications are is that they're going to continue and carry out his wishes. Time to move into print now, and uh, last week saw the Paul Foote Award winner announced... Uh, Now, that award, named after the celebrated Private Eye reporter, celebrates the best investigative journalism of the year. And it was won by Emma Yule for a campaign in which she highlighted the plights of thousands of people living in temporary accommodation in Hackney. Jake, this was won by a local newspaper, the Hackney Gazette. How significant is that? Well, it's uh, a huge credit to the Hackney Gazette. And uh, uh, it's great for them that at a time when all you hear is negative stories about the bottom falling out of local press that they're winning an award like this and there is proper investment in investigative journalism at grassroots. A sense that maybe that's why they won the award though because you know the other nominees were the usual suspects whether the Guardian was in there actually the Daily Mail was in there interestingly but you know they were better resourced publications I, I wonder if this won because it was the exception rather than the rule. Well anything that can encourage this to take place is clearly a positive thing I mean I'm, I'm waiting for the moment when we might see some of this sort of work start really starting to happen online in terms of online websites or online blogs I mean I know hyperlocal stuff yeah yeah well both both I mean you know the idea of people really starting to sort of unveil local scandals doesn't need to be something that is just the preserve of a local newspaper though I obviously know that takes time effort and money plenty of other forms of media have found their way online and found new ways to be done and this feels like something that's still quite old school Mm. quite old fashioned we still have that that romantic image don't we of the sort of hack digging away at the story but I love that though yeah yeah. <laughs> and do you know what we're sitting here talking about it and that is huge credit to the Hackney Gazette you know it shows that if you invest in proper journalism you'll get recognised for it and, and, and that's something to be celebrated but I do wonder and I, I don't know this woman Emma uh, at all so I'm, I'm not in any way uh, suggesting that this was her motivation but a lot of people who work for local press do it because it is still considered a step up into then working for the Nationals or working for another title. When you say Steve that you know this could be replaced perhaps in the future by basically a citizen journalist or someone doing it for online advertising I mean, the truth is going to council meetings is boring isn't it? Like Going through local stories in depth is boring people do it because they earn their stripes and then they can do something more exciting. I wonder if anyone's ever going to say, yeah, what I really want to do is go to every council meeting. Well, there's always someone, there's always, well, you know, it's not, not necessarily about council meetings, is it? But it's, it's just about having the tenacity to sort of dig under what seems on the surface and the time that that takes. But there's always someone who's up for that, you know. I mean, it is a slightly romanticised idea now, isn't it? You think about Broadchurch and the local paper in that, or... It, I mean, even is, House of Cards and is, the role of the Washington Herald. I think, you know, young people who recognise that doing proper journalism at a local newspaper is going to help them replicate that at a bigger title. They're right still. It's just that training in the journalism industry 
uh, or at least growth opportunities in the journalism industry are changing rapidly and what you're seeing nowadays is more and more young people joining online editions of you know the big newspaper websites uh, coming to places like business insider and they're learning journalism in a very different way it's much more about how they can generate a big audience for their work uh, rather than the sort of mechanics of getting good stories did you start on the local press jake i didn't no i started on trade press right. which i would argue is similar a, a similar a similar route in Do any of them have amusing titles <laughs> I used to work for a magazine called Supply Management, but I would never be disparaging oh, about my time there. Fun. That sounds fun. About the very sexy world of procurement. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, I learned a lot there. Yeah? Uh, you know, how to build people's trust, how to break stories. You, you cannot get that experience in a, in a classroom. I remember one of our panellists worked for Big Farms Weekly or something, didn't they? But I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> if you are interested to know more about this Private Eye Award, then you'll be pleased to know that producer Matt has made a special Private Eye podcast, it says here, about the awards. Just search for page 94 in your podcast plug. app. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, I see no regulator here, Jake. Yeah. We're on a roof terrace. We can do what we like. Uh, finally, just before the quiz, uh, did either of you see the editorial that the Daily Mail ran about The Guardian recently. I did. We're seeing nods. Yes. Um, <laughs> the Daily Mail called The Guardian the real purveyors of hatred. Um, who wants to tell this story? It's quite a fun gossipy story, isn't it? Uh, the Guardian Steve. ran a cartoon after the recent terrorist attacks which showed a truck or van I can't quite remember which it was, and I think it was. I can't remember if it was ploughing into people, but anyway, it, it, it was, was ploughing into the mosque in Finsbury Park. Right, and it said, and on read the side, the mail exactly the on the side of the uh, bus, it said, "Read, read the Sun and the Mail." And the Guardian then uh, wrote a piece saying, you know, basically, if you if you make uh, hateful noises, eventually these things might well happen. And I th- and the Mail responded very angrily. But what they said was, "How dare the Guardian?" accuse our four million readers of being purveyors of hate. And, um, Which isn't what they were doing. No, there's a nuance here. They were saying here. that the one reader that killed people yeah. might have read the mail and the sun. Well, there's a nuance here, which is what The Guardian was doing was attacking the editorial stance that is taken by those papers when it comes to stories around minorities and Islam and other very sensitive issues. And what The Mail read that as was not just an attack on their brand, but an attack on their entire ecosystem, which I don't think is... It's, well, look, it certainly wasn't my reading. Just as a punter, that wasn't what I read into uh, the cartoon. I think, I, you know, I think if you have a layer of sophistication and awareness, you understand the point that was, that was being made. But actually, it wasn't a very sophisticated cartoon, was it? I mean, you're saying a layer of sophistication. It, the truth is, you know, someone who's an extremist will be inspired by what they read, but also by what they see and what they hear. You know, there are many media outlets that trade in... Inflammatory yeah. Yeah, material. I mean, isn't it a golden political rule that you never respond to the satirical cartoon? It's just not the done thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a PR yeah, rule, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Don't make uh, yourself the, the centre of the story. I think the, the, uh, one of the brilliant angles of this story is you know, the idea of Paul Dacre sort of foaming at the mouth, banging out this leader, and the fact that it claims that he has nothing to do with the Mail Online. So, uh, the, so the leader said that the Guardian were the real purveyors of hate yes, because they're run by extreme leftists and they fail to understand the distinction. This apparently makes you a purveyor of hate. They fail to understand the distinction that Katie Hopkins writes for Mail Online, not the Daily Mail. I think it's fair to say that's a distinction that many readers fail to understand as well, isn't it, when they encounter the article online? 
well, they make no no effort to no. To, <laughs> to, to offer that distinction. Uh, yeah, and it was brilliantly lanced in Private Eye last week and by uh, James O'Brien on uh, LBC. Yeah, when he was saying that. Paul Dacre trousered a £263,000 bonus uh, for increasing the audience on Mail Online and, and investing in the Mail Online. It doesn't help the fractious political situation at the moment, does it, that the mainstream press is itself becoming so fractured? I think the other interesting thing around this story, actually, when you dig into it a bit, is the fact that the Mail has brought this to the attention of their readers when I would... I'd lay pretty good money that most Daily Mail readers were not aware of this cartoon. Not big consumers of Guardian or, cartoons. Or of what the Guardian had written at all, because obviously, why would they be? They're, they're, you know, the Guardian sells whatever it sells, I don't know, 250,000, 300,000 copies. The Mail sells whatever it, whatever it sells, significantly more. There's only going to be a small overlap of people who might buy both publications. Um, and they all work in the media. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so to then put this at the forefront of your paper and really bring it to the attention of all your readers seems interesting in one sense but maybe in the other goes back to what we're saying about Liam Fox it's kind of this polarizing thing that we've got going on within our society which we've seen for many years in America and which makes me feel very uncomfortable in the sense of is that really where we want our discussion and debate to go to whichever side of the political fence you sit on and actually the internet's exacerbated that hasn't it because there are blogs and podcasts and all the rest of it and news sites that are online only that clearly uh, offer content to a niche that's interested in a particular political viewpoint, the press, is they might as well sort of dig their heels in even more. You know, you always knew the Daily Mail was right-wing, but they had to try and appeal to the odd Daily Mirror reader who might buy them as well. Now it's just like, no, that's not what we do. What we do is this. It, is, it does feel like the lines of division are, are ever clearer these days between you know, the extreme right-wing press and the Corbynites online. You should probably say yeah. right, right-wing press rather than extreme right-wing yeah. press. I'm not sure. Well, the, the, but, but Breitbart, you might yeah. categorise yeah. as extreme right-wing, right? Yes. Possibly. Yeah. Breitbart, I think you would. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm not... I'm not yeah, I'm trying to make a distinction between... Careful, you don't want Dacre after you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're the real player. He's eight. looking nervous already. <laughs> <laughs> now, there is just time for our media quiz. This week, it's entitled News Bites. I'm going to make three badly constructed food pun news headlines, and your job is to decipher the media story within. It's best of three. Buzz in with your name, so Steve, you will say... Steve. And Jake, you will say... Jake. The winner is TFAL, the loser is product placement. Here is food pun number one. He was a film critic who knew his onions. Steve. Oh. Oh, Jake just got that. It's Barry Norman. And why not? Yes, the uh, death of Barry Norman face of the BBC film programme for about 100 years and, of course, Pickled Onions, who died this week at the age of 83. Did either of you meet Mr Norman? I did not. No, but I know he's not Barry Cryer. Uh, Correct. <laughs> yes. So the Mail Online, when they broke this story online, oh, did they? they had a picture of Barry Cryer, not Barry Norman. <laughs> uh, I did meet Barry Norman, thanks for asking. <laughs> uh, he was one of my first ever student magazine journalist interview pieces. I asked him for a half hour to publicise his memoir and he gave me two hours and he bought me lunch Wow! in a pub in Stevenage. That is a gentleman. Very nice man. Here's question number two. Which commentator has had his cake, eaten it and then dropped the mic? Jake. Jake. Henry Blofeld? Correct. Henry Blofeld will retire from Test Match Special in the autumn. Now, Barry Norman I could talk about all day. Henry Blofeld, obviously, I've literally never heard. Tell me why he's so special. A phenomenal broadcaster, wonderful, rich, resonant voice. Uh, if you've ever listened to Test Match Special, um, he has been one of the voices 
uh, of that programme, which I, th I think I'm right in saying is 60 years old maybe this year. I think I might be wrong on that front, but um, an amazing broadcaster. And for a test match special pop-up. <laughs> Could be, yeah. Test match special vintage on the way. Here's question number three. Why has Blue Peter had its chips? You can guess the story. Does uh, anyone ca Go on, Jake. Yes. Did the mail write something about Blue Peter ratings being zero or something? Correct. But I think... I saw a rebuttal online. Okay, the story as I have it, Jay Cantor, is that the show, Blue Peter, rated zero, according to Barb, on an episode that was broadcast in June. But you think there's some controversy over this? But I think the Mail Online has obviously taken that figure and produced a colourful report about it, which has then made its way onto Twitter, and uh, the BBC press office, I think, responded on Thursday to it directly, saying, we beg to differ, and... Publish some. It's actually 0. 0. 0.00. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a little better than that, to be fair to Blue Peter. Is it the end for Blue Peter, though? I mean, that does seem like a brand that exists purely for legacy nostalgia, not because any self respecting eight year old rushes home to see it. I hope not. Um, it's very difficult these days, I think, to really know. I mean, we kind of started the pod talking about children's yes. content, and it is so disparate now. It's very difficult, I think, to really, with any confidence, predict what sort of content kids are going to consume but magazine shows forward. generally are yeah kind of i mean dead, one they, would really? feel one's natural inclination would be to feel it's a bit outdated non-fashioned and yet at the same time as i said uh, cbbc is definitely a safe place yeah. for children to go and the content they produce is still phenomenal and so it, it, it kind of runs counterintuitive a bit one would hope that the the, the game is not up yet why, why would you ditch it you, you're at a period in broadcasting now where big legacy brands yes. are being revived and you've got a big legacy brand that's never been taken off air it's still going strong uh, the BBC should continue to back it okay well just to bring <laughs> things full circle then back to our original discussion at the Radio 1 Vintage and Children will we ever see Top of the Pops come back because that is something I would actually like to see is it too tainted now I don't think so but you might see because of a Savile? version of Live and Kicking coming back that's not the same <laughs> <laughs> but I'll take what I can get and you have won the quiz <laughs> even though that was a ridiculous thing to say. much to my upset. Uh, Jake Cantor is the winner. Steve Ackerman, thank you very much. Uh, that is it for our show today. Catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free at our website, themediapodcast.com. This episode is dedicated to BBC journalist Louie Ismail. Thank you, Louie. Join him, keep us on the air, and get an entire episode of this show dedicated to you. All you need to do is go to themediapodcast.com slash donate. Oh, yes, and give generously as much money as you possibly can. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. And until next time, bye-bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com 
So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Monday, it's the anniversary of kids' classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. On Tuesday, how Roquefort became the cheese of kings. On Wednesday, we meet the Jobs and Wozniak of the 1800s. On Thursday, the history of the YMCA, from the City of London to the village people. And on Friday, the edgy musical that made Greece the word. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.